prawns in the bud. Prawns. I like. I think it's from Big Tesco. But I, you know what? I love prawns. The I th- sea. It's all. It all links back. It all comes back to the sea, <laughs> and I, I miss, I miss prawns, uh, Rubian and Arabic, the ones that we have in in Bahrain. Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to the Zindabad FM podcast thing, whatever this is called. In today's episode, I was lucky enough to be chatting to Ali Al Jamri, who you might recognise from issue one. He had a really lovely little poem there called "The Milled Up Years." Ali Al Jamri is a Bahraini poet, translator, and editor based in the UK. In 2021, he edited Between Two Islands, Poetry by Bahrainis in Britain, and guest edited Arabic Quarterly, Folk. His poems and translations have been published in Modern Poetry and Translation, Arabic Quarterly, Poetry Birmingham, Harana, Bar Magazine, Consilience, Zindabad, and Anthologies, and has been featured at the Liverpool Arab Arts Festival. He curated the Manchester Poetry Library's Arabic language collection and is a new writing North Arabic translation mentee. You can find him on socials in the description for this podcast. Also, I hate to shout at the kind of podcast illusion that we are best friends sitting in the same room, but we did do this over Zoom, so it is not perfect, but that's Mr. Zoom's fault, not mine. Anyway, enjoy listening. I wanted to start off by asking about your relationship with diaspora and maybe your own personal family history, if you're comfortable with doing that. So I'm Bahraini, um, born in London, and um, there's a small but vibrant Bahraini community in London, because Britain is the... Uh, you know, it was the empire of, uh, not of choice, but it was our empire in, in Bahrain. So as you, as tends to happen, there is a congregation in, in the imperial capital. And I was born into that. And the community that kind of came out of Bahrain is, and Bahrain is a very tiny country. So you're talking about maybe a couple hundred of people at that time, max when you take it into proportion of the population, it was a a kind of a large diaspora. And that was mainly um, political opposition. It was people who'd come to study in the UK, maybe on scholarships, and then become part of the opposition. And by the time they'd finished their studies, it was not safe for them to return home. And so they'd end up uh, spending 10, 20, 30 years in the UK instead. And my family was very political. My grandfather was the leader of the opposition in Bahrain during the 1990s in Tafaba, uh, Sheikh Abdul Amir al-Jamri. And so we, they, we had a lot of political prisoners in our family and things like that. So we were born in the UK not by the choice of my parents. Once you're born in a place, you, you immediately grow roots. So I became British, whether or not they wanted or intended for their child to become British. And the same for my sisters, who were also born in the UK. I, I lived both in the UK in the 90s and in Bahrain in the 2000s, and then again in the UK uh, for the last 13 years basically my entire adult life. And there's always this question of, well, are you British enough? And are you Bahraini enough? And then that kind of seeps into the poetry as well. And in the last year in particular, it's, I think like it's always and often come out in my poetry, but 
it's I feel like la- the last year in particular I was really churning over these ideas of what does it mean to be uh, what does diaspora mean and like how do I where do I situate myself between these two islands as such which is um, uh, yeah I did not know that about your granddad being leader of the opposition that is very like intense family history are there any other like big events like especially since you've been in the UK that you've kind of, that have kind of shaped your relationship with diaspora slash or any identity while you've been here without having actually been there to experience them if that makes sense so I was doing my undergrad studies in uh, I started them in 2010 and in 2011 we had the Arab uprisings and started off in Tunisia in 2010, December 2010. So, and as we're recording this, I think the anniversary of Mohamed Bouazizi's self-immolation, which set off all those protests, has just gone a few days ago. I think on maybe the 17th or 18th of December. Then that spread to Egypt, then that spread to Bahrain and Yemen were the next two countries. And then after Yemen and Bahrain, I think it went to Libya and Syria. So people don't, people often forget about Bahrain because it kind of happened between its tiny country and so on. Uh, But Bahrain was one of the six countries that was really gripped by the protests. And if you look at it per capita, it had actually the largest protest movement in the Arab world because you're talking about maybe 300,000 people on the streets in a population of around, a citizen population of estimated around 600,000 to a million. So you're talking about, depending on how you do your stats, 50 to 25% of the population. Obviously stats are always subject to wild interpretations depending on who you're talking to. So I was doing my undergraduate studies and I suddenly couldn't go back home and uh, there was there were real risks. I was a British citizen, so I didn't have to worry about some things. But you know, there were Bahraini students who would protest in the UK and um, get their you know their photos to be shared on social media and things like that. And then every day I was looking at the news and following what was happening. And my family being very political, so I had you know I had to worry about uh, uncles who were in politics. My dad who was a um, journalist, other family members who were journalists and so on, and even family members who had nothing to do with politics. And we were all, um, it just seemed like everyone was at risk. There were family friends who disappeared and turned up dead. And I think for us Arabs who were 18, 19, 20, just on the cusp of adulthood, that kind of reshaped and hijacked our entire life trajectory Um, because it was clear that there were a lot of problems before like it didn't come out of nowhere but it completely reshaped everything that we would do and I think for me it's reshaped my entire relationship with Bahrain but also with the the UK which has uh, been a, a stalwart supporter of Bahraini government throughout the last 10 years and my relationship to both and where do I stand and you know, how do I also how do I benefit my community those are questions that are constantly being asked I like find myself asking I'm really interested in your use of that word hijack like if there's a link there between 
being like, ah, my whole worldview doesn't really work anymore. I need to write some more poems now. Like, how did that start? Where did your, like, poetry germinate from? Yeah, because I think, for me, it was all about having no means of expression, right? So um, you could, you know, everything that you said, anything that you said could be used against you. And you're watching people going to prison on political charges, left, right and centre in Bahrain, but also outside of Bahrain, in in Egypt, in Syria, in Saudi Arabia, in all of these countries which have very like um, strong links with the country in various ways. And you're thinking, well, I want to say something, I've got an opinion, and every time you want to express that opinion, you're doing all of these mental gymnastics of like, okay, how, how far can I say? And I'm doing it right now, even as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking like, what can I say that won't land me in hot water? And you're essentially constantly doing that. And that's what it's like not to have freedom of expression. What can I say not to land in hot water? And eventually you come to the conclusion, well, the safest thing to do is not to say anything, right? And, uh, but if you do that, then what you discover is that there's this genuine kind of bodily reaction, like physical, physical response to silence. Like, I think, like, the body, like, you're literally like a shaking Coca-Cola bottle and then you've like you're keeping the lid firmly shut and you just want to shout and you're just bursting on the inside and it feels horrible and it feels like you're almost physically ill because you're not saying something. That was the feeling that only poetry could be a valve for because, well, for so many reasons, but, you know, you, you can write a you can write a very angry and honest poem and then tear it up and throw it in the bin and you've just gone out of your system. Or you can write something that has layers that maybe only you understand or maybe you find out other people understand as well. Or you know, you can you can just find many ways to express yourself through that medium I found. I'd always been a writer in various ways. I enjoyed writing but never explored poetry and then it was twenty fifteen so I was, uh, yeah, 23, nearly 24. And by then it was, you know, very clear that, you know, those aspirations that started off the Arab uprisings were not being achieved. We were in this kind of stalemate situations. We were still a year away from Brexit and Trump and that kind of thing where we start seeing authoritarianism spread in the West at a very alarming pace and all of the kind of uh, patterns that we see in the Arab world, we start seeing them happening in the Western world, um, and you realise, well, you know, authoritarianism isn't a, isn't an Eastern thing. The the West is incredibly good at being authoritarian to its own self. It's all come back to the imperial capital. But anyway, that was, um, you know, it was all of these frustrations bottling up, and then actually my very first poem... Um, I wrote it, I can't remember, but there there was some political event at that time. And my poem was actually not about modern Bahrain, it was actually about when the Portuguese in the 16th century colonised Bahrain. 
and the Portuguese ruled Bahrain for about 80 years on and off from about 1520 to 1600. And I just started writing this introduction to like an epic poem, like this prologue of uh, describing the Portuguese entrance into Bahrain and the carnage that they were wrecking uh, on the Bahraini people. And the poem and the subject matter, talking about this old historic incident, just allowed a safety valve for all of these bottled up feelings. And then it just didn't stop after that. But I didn't really really commit myself to the poetry until... uh, I was uh, on the other side of my 20s until I was about 28 or so. And that's when I started thinking, yeah, I could actually do this quite seriously. I was wondering if you'd like to read your poem that's in Zindabad that she won. Yes. I've got Zindabad right here as well. I'm just holding it up to the camera. And I absolutely, I have to say, like, I was just astounded by the quality of Zindabad when it first came to me because it's just such a beautiful magazine and also before I read it I just also will never stop appreciating how perfectly you paired my poem with uh, Rewa Saab's poem uh, where mine talks about Bahrain and heritage, hers talks about Lebanon and heritage in very similar but very distinct ways and I just think the way that you kind of laid it out yeah like nothing nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing them together so without further ado I guess I'll just read it it's called The Milled Up Years it's the land of a million palm trees my barber would tell me before I had laid eyes on my homeland I would close my eyes in Hyde Park and see them all one million and run my hand along the ridges of the bark prick my finger on the spiny ends of the leaves, turn my teeth into a harvest of dates, hold up two fallen fronds to become the millionth and first palm myself. All this was palm trees in my day, my Baba would say, overlooking Beni Jamra from the hill where Mullah Yusuf's house once stood. Our sight stretches from the pockmarked graveyard to the paved-over farms, where dust rinses the sun-bleached walls of a modern villa with garage space for three cars. To find those palms, I have to click through blog after blog, from Algerish to MapBH, in search of patched-together satellite imagery. The slideshow starts with the birth of my father in 61, and there is the million. I drag the slider right bulldozing the curtain of green, arriving at the barren 2010s. Today's sharp focus lacks the vibrancy of the grayscale past. I slide back to 61, trace my finger around the satellite image, smudge my prints against the glass of the screen, then save a JPEG. Later, when I double-click the file, I almost grasp it. The land of a million palms. I love that poem so much, and I remember when you submitted, you like put a link into the website that, like you like the sort of like digital archive you're accessing, and I'm reading it and then going on it myself and being like, whoa! I don't know, I just thought it was incredible. Would you like to like talk a little bit about that website and archives and how that kind of informs your work or like where this poem came from? Yeah, I think that website is uh, it's called Matt B H. The guy that runs it, he's 
And, and not just him, but a lot of people are very deeply invested in like Bahrain's natural landscape and heritage because we do grow up with this idea, this mythology of our country as um, this paradise. And we are aware, even if few other people are, that um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, in the Sumerian kind of mythos, what is today Bahrain was considered their kind of land of eternal life. If you think of it as mythologies kind of over the, uh, over the millennia, that the Garden of Eden comes from this idea of ancient Bahrain as the Sumerians understood it. Uh, so we're very aware of the islands as having been this kind of paradisal garden where uh, you had, even though it's in kind of the desert, fresh water springs that bubble from underneath the sea have like these currents, uh, underwater channels of fresh water that come under the salt water and they have uh, an irrigation across the entire islands and and all of these date palms, a million of them, that you could walk for miles and be in shade, in complete shade and things like that. And then if you go there today, it's completely deforested. And uh, Matt B.H., what Ahmed, who runs it's done, which is amazing, is he's brought together a lot of maps. He's not actually used satellite imagery. He's actually gone for historic maps, like hand-drawn maps and things like that, uh, but which represent important features as well. So some of them will show, like, you know, have been painted to show the the forests of palm trees and things like that, and overlays it over the modern kind of Google Maps of of Bahrain. So you can do a slide by, side-by-side comparison and things like that of 1930s Bahrain and modern Bahrain. And what you see is like the entire island uh, goes from green to yellow to that kind of sandy, dusty colour. And for me, growing up, in the UK and before I kind of laid eyes on Bahrain I had those imaginaries of this very green land you know covered in palm trees and kind of the reality of walking or really really driving around Bahrain with my dad and he'd point out you know Back in back in the seventies, when I'd walk down this road to school, it was completely covered in palm trees, and now it's just you know uh, now it's literally just sand swept and things like that. And then, and of course, you can still find greenery, but it's essentially been desertified. And the desertification is wholly man-made. People have chosen to cut down all of the trees. People have chosen to build houses and houses and houses if you follow the money you can ask you know who's who are the people deciding uh, to do so who's actually benefiting from that because there's a very huge feeling of loss and there's a lot of I think there's there's a lot of ecological work by um, communities now in Bahrain who are trying to recapture that but there's only so much you can do after after it's gone so for me it was all about this kind of you know, the the imagined as a child and then the experience, the disappointment of reality and and, and the, this kind of nostalgia for something that I've never 
really experienced, but which I have a very incredibly vivid imaginary of what it looks like. Yeah, I think one of the biggest like diaspora poetry like staples is to be like romanticizing the land that you were born on or that your parents grew up on, but to have that literally being like this is what the Garden of Eden is based on to like now it's just desertified and people live here. <laughs> That's such an intense like zero to one hundred almost. Not even zero, but like do you know what I mean? Yeah, it it really um there there's there's this really huge sorrow around it. And um, and sometimes, because then, of course, I live in the UK and it's also got its own kind of environmental problems. I kind of wonder, like, why uh, doesn't it grip me as much? But, and obviously I care about it, I care about my local environment and so on. But, like, I don't have any of that kind of deep passion. To, I, don't, I don't go to sleep uh, thinking about, you know, the, the amount of trees planted in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Although mm-hmm. I probably oh. should. But, but like it, it doesn't it, it doesn't grip me as much and I think I think it is yeah the, the there is this kind of diasporic nostalgia for the homeland isn't there that all of us share yeah I'm also really intrigued by I feel like in diaspora poems it's again such a like cliche to have like your parents appear in your poems whether it's them now or like them when they were your age and obviously your dad appears in this poem and I was wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about him and also a poem that I think it's in Harana poetry really caught my eye about patriarchy and lineage in relation to diaspora i'm gonna i'm gonna open that one up quickly because it's it's quite a short poem so i can i can read it quite quickly as well and i was very lucky this month i've had a lot of stuff come out and i've had a very blessed 2021 so i don't take that for granted um and i think when i think about and actually, when we were when we uh, were talking, we were just like collecting the notes. I did a quick. I opened up my document, my master copy, which has all of my drafts uh, in one document, and I did like a Control F search function, and I just looked for Dad, Baba, and Father, like the three most common words for Dad that I, I will use in my poems. I think I got about eighty hits, and then I did the equivalent Mum mother and mama and I got about 50 hits and I think that says a lot that uh, is kind of unpacked in that uh, in that poem so I'll I'll read it out first uh, it's called the male line a father sits his son down to teach his ancestry the father's 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 father is as far back as the father can go the son learns it all Years later, the son realises he does not know his mother's mother's name. He goes to ask his father. At least by my standards on socials, it seemed to like be a very popular poem that got shared out. And I thought like, that probably speaks to um, Arab patriarchy in hopefully a, a way that's resonated with a lot of people because... Yeah, like my my dad is definitely one of the key figures in all of my poetry, and he's um, like my model. And my grandfather is his model, so my grandfather's also my model. Uh, and everything you know is 
Am I acting in life as my dad would have? Am I doing the things? Am I living by the same moral code? Am I? Would he be proud of this? Would he be? And I think, well, obviously everyone should want to. Well, should everyone want to please their parents? But the the desire to please parents is I don't know. It's a very there's a particular expression of it that's very Arab in this way, which is the desire to you know live up to the male ancestors and me as the eldest son I'm not the eldest child uh, but the eldest son there's this like psychological pressure that like well I continue the the male line of the the <laughs> you know onto the next generation and I have like you know, the, the family name and so on and, and it's problematic because then our entire culture is kind of around fatherhood and men and kind of writes out mothers and even as I say this someone probably listening will probably disagree and say actually I'm Arab and we value motherhood incredibly and that's also true but in like in our family tree they they weren't listing until I think quite recently in our family tree they weren't listing the women it was just lines of men as if the men were just reproducing each other somehow like 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 just splitting in half and oh. you've got a new one and and even like when i talk to my my family and i ask about family stories and stuff like that it's incredibly easy to find uh, stories about male ancestors and even when i talk to my female family they'll want they usually will want to talk about their fathers and are less interested in sharing with me stories of their mothers and that might be the kind of the blind side of male privilege because obviously this is this is really really about male privilege and you know maybe because I'm a man they're like well you know he's interested in hearing about the men give him the stories about the men that's what men want to hear so maybe maybe there's this kind of blinders that's down but I've always found it quite uh, well, not always, but like particularly much more recently, found it problematic just how much of a focus there is, particularly in my life and in the culture around me, in our fathers and not enough in our mothers. So this, yeah, as I've been writing more and more, I want to kind of try and address that because I love them both equally. Have I valued them equally? And once you're aware of it, you can't, you can no longer blame like, oh, well, it's cultural forces, you know, it's, it's, it's their culture, they, they care about the men in their families, well, well, now I'm aware of it, so I need to like, address it, and I think that's something that was quite important to me, and actually when I, so that one on Harana, I think a lot of people seem to, um, seem to enjoy as well. How have the men and all, like, all women in your family reacted to your poetry? Or, like, it's particularly your dad in terms of, like, him being almost, like, one of the main characters in the cast of your poetic universe? I think um, I go by the rule of I, I try not to share anything publicly that I wouldn't be happy with my parents seeing. So they're, they're, they're really supportive. Um, and there's occasional times where... Um, uh, you know, there, there are subjects um, that kind of want to write about. And, and you know, then you know, I was talking about self-censorship earlier. 
um, from like you know self censoring from the state. But I think you know something we can probably a lot of diaspora can feel uh, sympathy with is the kind of self censorship you do for family, and like you sometimes have to think, well, what am I willing to put out there? Because there is this you know idea of like don't bring shame on the family, kind of thing, and uh, no one seems to think that I'm doing that. I don't think I'm doing that, but you know there are subjects that I could discuss that are much more sensitive and which I probably don't because I kind of worry like, well, what will you know what what will this family member think? Because um, I uh, I don't want to upset them. I think art is always risky and you're always at risk of upsetting somebody, but there are certain risks that I'm not willing to take. <laughs> at least presently, that I think would be where <laughs> kind of uh, different opinions might emerge from family if I if I went down some routes. I'm still really taken by like what you were saying a couple of minutes ago about your dad is your model and then your granddad is his model. That idea of like ancestors and who you're like kind of looking back to is very like big for me because Safiya El-Hilo, who I'm literally sponsored by at this point, there's like a podcast where she talks about her contemporaries as her ancestors and as her like models in writing and also in just like being a person. And I wanted to ask, who are you in conversation with as you're writing? And also like, is it mostly men? Is that something you're trying to confront? Contemporaries as ancestors or ancestors as contemporaries? Oh, that's a, I meant contemporaries as ancestors, but I think taking it the other way is also quite an interesting way of doing it. Because I'm, I'm more familiar with the reverse. I've heard yeah. the reverse before. And one poet and uh, academic that I've worked uh, a fair bit with in, in 2021, Huda Fakhruddin, and we did an event on Arabic poetry uh, and kind of uh, and diaspora a couple of months ago with the Manchester Poetry Library. And she is very much of the opinion that so you know, once you're engaging with poets, living or dead, you are their contemporary. They are your contemporary, and you are in direct conversation with them. And she really brought my attention to that. And she's uh, got a lot of great translation books out and uh, books of theory out, which um, I've got into the stage of poetry writing that I've actually been reaching for for. For it, and I think in terms of the poets that who are kind of, if I think of dead poets in particular, who I've really been reaching to, I associate both as contemporaries and as ancestors. Really, the furthest back I think I've gone is the actual Epic of Gilgamesh. I read every single translation of it that I could find, and uh, was uh, you know hand cherry picking and comparing different lines and translations of them, and really feeling them kind of feeling them in my uh my hands basically and trying to work with them and really feeling a strong connection with them but there's also been kind of in the last year a lot of connection i've felt with tarafa ibn al-abd who's a pre-islamic poet from bahrain and he was one of he wrote one of the muallaqat which were hang, the hanging odes that were embroidered and kind of hung on the kaaba uh and uh, reading him, who I don't necessarily particularly like as a person, this was kind of a boisterous and strange man, but 
being able to find um like there's even though there's like 15 1600 years separating us there's this immediate link because he'll talk about things that i recognize he'll mention a tribe's name and there's a village named after that tribe to this day and he'll mention uh he in his opening he'll immediately talk about the about pearls he'll talk about a gift of pearls for his beloved i think and every Bahraini will always try and fit pearls because that's what we were famous for was pearl diving. So whether you are a pre-Islamic Bahraini or a modern 21st Bahraini, if you're writing poetry, you're probably going to try and slip a few pearls that immediately bridged this great gap and brought this feeling of belonging. I think also Mejnoon Leila as well, reading a lot of uh, those poems, those um, of and um, kind of the original poems of Mejnoun Leila, the, the, the love poetry to the, this Platonic love poetry, but because it's Platonic and it's not, it's not sexual. It's very like a, a love for her, which is almost religious and uh, adoring. It's very easy to turn Layla into something else. It's very easy to read Mejnun Layla and kind of read his adoration for this love that he cannot have as like the adoration of a homeland that is not what you want it to be. And you can kind of read into it and change the, the beloved from a woman into into you know, whatever metaphor you you choose to read into it. I think I think those are Two, two of the big ones, and then another one is Abul Qasim al-Shabi, who is the Tunisian poet, and kind of the national poet, so I translated him. I always flipped through his D1, because he was this Renaissance poet who died of a heart illness when he was about 25 in 1934, and I'm just obsessed with him, because you read him and he's got all of these hopes and aspirations and all of these bitter bitter feelings, I think he experienced depression and so on, and you kind of just, you're reading it, and you kind of just want to sit with him and have a chat, and um, I, I find it really, like, when I, whenever I open his book, I often find myself feeling like I'm kind of visiting a friend, so what I've found is that it's always, it's, uh, I've found this kind of feeling a lot more with Arabic poets rather than English writing poets. Like I don't, no, I don't feel that kind of connection, and I've, I'm lucky that because uh, I couldn't always speak and read Arabic fluently. As I've gotten more fluent, I've been able to access this literature, which um, I found speaks to me, and I kind of feel that I'm communicating back to it. But it is mainly men. I think the the woman who I, if there's one woman, it's probably Nazik al-Malaika, who's a, a Iraqi poet, died around 2000 and something, about 15, 16 years ago, and was a very influential kind of modern poet. And reading her book, which uh, was recently, there's a book of translations of hers called Revolt Against the Sun, which was recently published by Saki books and she's very interesting because she's very she she hated free verse and she was super committed she was a modernizer but she was very committed to metered verse and she she kind of modernized the way that meter works 
in Arabic, and that's what she's known for. But she absolutely loathed free verse, unmetered verse, and had many, many uh, angry things to say about it. And it's very interesting to read her beautiful kind of romantic poetry and nationalist and depressing, <laughs> often, poetry, and her feminist poetry as well, it should be said. Uh, there's almost always like a strong female lead within the poems or like the the celebration or the commemoration of some female character. But she's so hostile towards something that's so part of my poetry that it that is part of the joy of reading it as well. Well, I'm enjoying you, but I don't think you'd rate my poetry. So like, where where do we stand? Where, where do we stand with each other? And it's really interesting that you can have those conversations. But certainly at the moment, there's a lot of a lot more men in the list than women. And for me, like, I think you know, that that is part of allyship, I guess, is always to like, be aware of that. And I'm like, I'm a man. I'm a cis man. Okay, I'm brown, but I'm a cis man. And so, like, uh, I live in cis man world and uh, I need to actively take myself out of that as often as I can. And that's been something that I'm trying to do. I'm not always as successful in it as I want to be because here I've listed about three or four men and just one woman. But for the <laughs> for the benefit of time, I think I'll, I'll pause it there. Looking at like the notes that we made before this, and you were in like regards to your poem "Comes the Sea," which is in Poetry Birmingham Literary Journal. That one, PBLJ. I keep wanting to say peanut butter, but no, that's something else. Um, you that's a really beautiful poem where you have no like you talk about how in your original draft you had it like resembled Arabic prose with zero full stops and lots of ands and I was so intrigued by like what you were just saying now about like this poet being like I hate free verse but that is a free verse poem (laughs) and like your relationship with Arabic writing in English if that makes sense first of all I love the idea of peanut butter literary review um, literary journal I think um, yeah uh, if if we if we do that I think Nosh is going to have um, stiff competition if that <laughs> if that launches um, but yeah that that's true and I think one thing that I've tried to do because this has been like my focus has really been on diaspora stuff and I'm almost sick of it by now and I kind of wrote a poem a while ago, back in kind of October time, uh, which for me was the kind of culmination of all my experiments in diaspora. And it's interesting you talk about like Arabic because that poem was written in ha- half in English, half in Arabic, and actually refers to a lot of the poets that I mentioned and will or it, like borrows lines from them and then responds to them. Uh, talks about this idea of Bahrain as the land of a million palm trees, which, as the poem says, land of a million palm trees sounds so self-orientalizing, but when you say in Eng- when you say in English, but when you say in Arabic, uh, it jumps backwards and forwards um, and thinks about, like, identity and diaspora through language. It's become something that I'm very interested in and kind of the ideas and questions around mother tongues as well. So 
a lot of what I tried to do. And I wrote this poem nearly two years ago in January 2020, so even before COVID really kicked off. I was already conscious that I wanted to kind of express myself in Arabic more and more, and I was really frustrated because my Arabic wasn't there. And I wanted to write a poem, but I didn't want to write an English poem, and I thought, like, what's very Arabic is... Uh, you know, traditionally Arabic didn't have full stops and you kind of just strung together clause after clause using and, 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 and and that's how the prose tends to be written and that sound of Arabic I associate very strongly with the sea for some reason and there's probably good reasons actually when you talk about poetry in Arabic there's a lot of sea metaphors so a meters are called bahur, so a meter, which is the same word as sea. So a bahar can be both a kind of a, a, a meter, like an iambic pentameter, and so on. Uh, and you you call it bahar al-tawil. That's the the long the long sea, and then that's a particular meter that poetry can be written on. Bahar al-sari. That's uh, the fast. So maybe maybe that's why. But there's there's um, this association I had between the sea and Arabic and I just put it all into that poem and but it's written in English and actually what's interesting because it's now been two years nearly since I wrote that is I write a lot more in Arabic now than when I initially wrote that poem so I probably wouldn't never write that poem today or if I did write it I'd write it in such a completely different way because my kind of poetics is moved on from there and I I don't need to try and mimic the lack of full stops in Arabic to um, to kind of express myself as an Arab uh, any longer but I did need that at the time and it did create was hopefully a good poem so it's called Comes the Sea and it's in Poetry Birmingham issue 7 Comes the Sea We park so close to the sea, the Toyota catches the spray, watching the construction site, gobbling jasmines, you say, that's where we're implanting, the new heart of the country. I try to say something pithy about the coral reefs, you jabber, just wait and see, we live in times of perpetual progress. Of course you are right, yes, you are right, despite the war in Iraq, the second intifada, Hariri's murder, We are living in an oil boom and we won't be caught in a bust. Bahrain's investing untold metric tons of sand into the sea. Land reclamation. Land reclamation. That's what we name the process. Siphoning oil, burying sand, reshaping the contours of the shore, growing our mass like the oil grows our GDP. Later, tugging the fat, hugging my belly, I wonder... How Bahrain will contain us and how the sea will contain Bahrain and will Bahrain still deserve to be named after the sea when we've made the gulf into a plain? The next day, I watch the machines taking back the sea, rejecting bounties of pearls and shells for fintech and hotels. Months surge into years. The financial harbour, no longer an architect's vision, plastering every billboard. Now, towers of Metal and glass rise like a two-finger salute. Years come to a day. We sit in the car again. You're saying, feel that electric heartbeat. Are you talking about your pacer? 
the car engine, the hum of the financial harbour. We park where we parked before. Glass glitters in the sun. I can no longer see it. I say we've occupied the sea. Two chins shake with your reply, like Palestine is occupied. I should say, you don't care about Palestine, but you continue. Palestine is a shame and Iraq is a shame, but this financial harbour is our Arab confidence, built by overpaid Brits and exploited Indians. Time surges. We park as close as security allows. A dust storm smatters the Mercedes with its chafing kisses. We eat lamb tikkas, the meat from New Zealand. You joke, Bahrain is now many miles nearer to New Zealand. I sigh. I miss my mother's cooking. You retch over the wheel and cry. The price of fish has skyrocketed. Streaming tears. Your granny's menu of stuffed hamour and grilled chan'ad and endless semich safi. Just a childhood memory. You chug heart medication. I flick on the radio. Drowning us. I love that poem so much. Thank you so much for reading it. Um, people who are listening, I think it's on Ali's Instagram if you want to like see it visually. Like, the way it plays with space is incredible. And also just like the fact that you have all these like beautiful images of like a Toyota like by the sea, which is so like cinematic and this glittering glass, but also you have like the word GDP in there. I think it's so like, it's doing so much. I love it a lot. Um, in the interest of time, I will move towards your other projects quickly between two islands hello tell me about it please <laughs> so we we're talking at the start like that we use that word hijacked um right at the beginning when we talked about the arab uprisings and that they they kind of hijacked our lives there and that makes it sound like the uprisings were at fault for something. I think that they were a brilliant expression of a desire for change, that their social contracts not were not working in the Arab world and to a large extent still are not working in the Arab world. And, you know, you can see that in the fact that there was a revolution in Sudan. There's also the same in Lebanon, which... That started in 2019, and then they unfortunately had the Beirut blast uh, in in 2020. And you had you also had movements in, I think, in Algeria, uh, and these are quite recent. These are in the last two years or so. So, the Arab Spring, you know, is not a historic moment that's ended. It's ongoing and it's renewed. Now, um, you know, I've hit 30, so I'm not, no longer, like, the youngest generation, but, like, it's being renewed by people who are 10 years younger than us, who are, have the same frustrations uh, and the same energies and the same desires for change. And, but it, it changed, it changed our entire trajectory of life, and I think that's what I mean by hijacked. And so for me, kind of... 2020, I was very aware that we were coming up to the 10-year anniversary of the Arab uprisings. I kind of wanted to mark them in some way. And uh, I was like, you know, I think it started off as that. I'll try and get some funding and put together like a pamphlet and try and publish that. And thankfully, I had some really good mentors and uh, they kind of steered me away from that for a variety of reasons. And... At the same time, I met in the summer of 2020, I properly met 
Tahir Adil, who's another Bahraini British poet, who is about the same age as me as well, and he's doing his own thing, and he's very successful in what he does, and he's he's very he's very great at religious and spiritual poetry, and uh, I would say spiritual poetry with like true spiritualism at its heart, which is not always the case with um, spiritual stuff on Instagram it was through that meeting and I was like oh you know all this time I felt like I'm the only British Bahraini poet and I'm always like on the back foot I'm always kind of having to explain my perspective especially if it's in a room of white people wouldn't it be great if we just had lots of Bahrainis because we're really creative and the thing is that because of the limits on freedom of expression there's like that creativity isn't really going anywhere in, in the homeland or what if we just brought lots of people together to write poetry? Because what's more Arab than that? And uh, I can't be the only one. Dar has proved it. We can't be the only two. Let's find out. So it went from marking the 10-year anniversary almost to... Uh, and what it actually became was a pivot, and like a renewal. And 2021 is... I thought it would be really important to me because... 10 year anniversary and the moment that we got to the 10 year thing in February for us the 14th of February I was like well I don't really want to mark this as anything because you start talking about 10 years and actually you start talking about it as though it's dead and like you start it's all like you know funeral speeches that's what 10 year anniversary speeches actually sound like I was like well it's it's not dead you know I just talked about like Sudan and things like that so what Between Two Islands ended up being, we managed, lucky, um, to have some really great help from Young Identity, uh, Common Word, Liverpool Arab Arts Festival, Arab British Centre, and it developed into a series of workshops, and we kind of pretty much took it from there. The, the workshops were the clearest part once we got the funding and we knew we needed to create some outputs, but we would kind of see how that came together. It was lockdown as well when we ran it in January, so it was all via Zoom when people were isolated from each other. And I managed to bring together about 13, 14 Bahrainis to over six weeks and with our co-workshop lead, uh, Amina Atiq, who's from the Yemeni Scouse community, a brilliant poet in her own right. We kind of nurtured this group to explore poetry. And what we did was we, we, we made it a bilingual space, so every poem we had it in both English and in Arabic. So for me, it also pushed my Arabic to its limits and I had to really like go out of my comfort zones. I wasn't going to use, you know, the English canon. I needed to address my gaps in the Arabic canon to like make it work and stuff. And what we ended up with was really beautiful because we had 14 poets from about ages of 15 to 50, people who'd written and stopped writing, people who were poets, people who'd never written, people of all relationships with the written word. And we just wrote about being Bahrainian, but being in the UK. And then we, we put that together into an anthology, which uh, I should be much more capitalist about trying to sell, which you can buy, but it's also freely available online because I want it to get to as many people as possible. But if you do buy it, it will also support more Bahraini arts uh, stuff in the future. And then uh, that kind of core has really uh, continued. So 
we we had an event uh, we launched the anthology in March 2021 we had an event in the Liverpool Arab Arts Festival where we brought everyone together to perform live there uh, and we also put together a soundscape which uh, you can listen to it's like a 15 minute audio piece which is on the again on the Liverpool Arab Arts Festival and it's freely available on their website still and you can just listen to that and it's a lot of poems strung together alongside music and a narrative of exploring this underwater Bahrain. I think the most interesting thing, uh, well, there, there were so many things, but in relation to this conversation of diaspora, what was really interesting was that we were touching on issues and talking about them in ways that our predecessors and our forebears were talking about. So we talk a lot about the palm tree and the sea, and those are the two repeating motifs in the anthology and that wasn't planned I didn't we didn't have a workshop about uh, right about a tree we don't the sea was very an, a very obvious metaphor because between two islands was the name of the project Bahrain is an island Britain is an island the sea is a very obvious comparison note but people's relationships to the sea and to the trees. What I noticed was the trees tended to be, and I wrote about this in the introduction, the the trees tend to be community, tend to be maybe female, characterised as female, there's something nurturing about them. The sea tended to be much more ambiguous. There was a a pull towards it, but there was also a danger in it. There was this very ambiguous danger about the sea and people... And their poems might be getting lost in the sea, might be getting, might be drowning in it, but might also be discovering their ancestors in it. And there's all of these mixed emotions wrapped up in it. And then, you know, it was like three or four months afterwards. I'm always bugging my family to send me new books from Bahrain, whatever they can get their hands on. And my dad sent me, one of the things he sent me was this poetry theory book from like 1995 or something. And... In that theory book, the the writer Alawi al-Hashimi, who's a Bahraini student of poetry or scholar of poetry, writes that if the date palm for Bahraini people is the real mother without whom they cannot live, then the sea is rightfully their father, giver of sustenance and life, though the sea is also a cruel and grim father. And then he backs it up with poetic lines and so on. And and then he talks a lot more about that. So he characterizes the sea as this cruel father who who is both a giver and a taker of things uh, and the, the tree as the mother who nurtures. I was like, well, I wasn't aware of him. I was not channeling him in any way when I wrote this, but I was because we're, we're like, we're here, here. I had no idea, but we're actually responding to the same things and drawing the same metaphors out of the same symbols even though our relationship to the homeland will have been completely different and that again like you just discover that there's all these ways that you connect to home that you don't even realize that you do god that must have been so spooky reading that and being like that's literally my introduction <laughs> like accidentally not, not even plagiarized but like you just like shared a brain cell over what 26 years yeah, and I was like, wish I'd read him earlier. <laughs> You've been like, you like, I thought I was original. <laughs> there's, there, there, there's new, there's, there's new angles, but it's the same, mm. 
it's the same thing. You're just looking at it from different angles, isn't it? But uh, and that's actually, I don't know. That that's quite a nice thing. I, I'm I'm happy with that. <laughs> I think I will bring things to a close. Sorry, we didn't get to talk about everything, everything. But this has been very like enlightening. I feel like I need to lie down in the dark for two days, like you said, <laughs> and just think. Um, before I stop recording, where can people find you and your poems? So I am at Ali El Jamri underscore scribbles on Instagram. I am on Twitter on at Ali underscore M N M for monsoon and for November underscore El Jamri. Uh, I also uh, use I've got a website Ali which just holds all of the things and links together as well. 